You are listening to The Scope, a podcast dedicated to having open conversations about healthcare topics relevant to our patients and community. Today, we're talking about cardiac health. Let's get started. Today, our guest is Dr. Dimitri Fimeltsa, a Phelps Health cardiologist. Welcome to our show today. Hi, thank you. How are you? Good. How are you? We're really excited to have you here. Thank you. Um, I feel like I just saw you. <laughs> yes, yes, you did. <laughs> yes. So before we get started, um, we really love to start off our show with our providers telling us a little bit about themselves and their practice. Uh, my name is Dr. Vimeltsov, uh, Dr. Dimitri. A lot of people know me here uh, by uh, I, um, uh, one of the general cardiologists at Phelps Health, um, uh, seeing patients uh, as an outpatient at clinic and inpatient. Um, and I've been here for um, over, um, it's getting close to two years, um, enjoying it so far, uh, people, uh, job is great. Uh, and uh, we're taking care of every type of uh, heart condition here at Phelps Health, um, you name it, heart attacks, post-heart attack, head care, arrhythmias, uh, vascular type of diseases, uh, primary prevention, um, of coronary disease and strokes and all that is all uh, part of our daily uh, operations kind of thing. So one thing that you mentioned is that you take care of all types of cardiac events. Is that pretty unique because we live in a rural area? Uh, I think uh, it's uh, heart disease, especially coronary artery disease, is uh, is common everywhere. It's uh, number one uh, leader in, 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 in mortality and morbidity. Uh, of the population uh, in this country and in the world. So it's common uh, everywhere you go. Um, and I think it's wonderful that we have a lot of uh, specialists here to take care of those type of uh, issues if a patient encounters them. So today, one of the things that we're gonna focus specifically on is coronary artery disease. So what is coronary artery disease? Let's explain that. The coronary artery disease, uh, there's several types of coronary artery disease, but uh, Coronary artery disease, and the, the, the most common, uh, most commonly, is due to uh, lipid-rich uh, plaque or atherosclerotic plaque. Those are basically uh, deposits of the uh, uh, fat or bad cholesterol, what we call it, because there's bad and good cholesterol. And uh, those deposition form plaque uh, inside the vessel of uh, the heart, the vessels that supply the heart with blood and over time that can build up to the point where uh, where the blood is uh, not sufficiently going to the parts of the heart and cause symptoms. There could be a chronic disease which slow build up of that plaque or it could be an acute coronary syndrome when the plaque becomes unstable, opens up, thrombus or clot forms and that's the one that heart attack that everybody thinks about that they show on TV that can actually cause sudden cardiac death or really, really big damage to the heart function if not taken care of immediately. Now you also mentioned symptoms. What are some of those symptoms if somebody is experiencing coronary artery disease that they're, that they're gonna feel? The symptoms of coronary artery disease are most likely going to be chest pains, so, uh, precordial or retrosternal chest pain. It's in the middle of your chest, on the left side of your chest. Many times it radiates down your left arm, neck, or jaw. But this is not really, not the only uh, present, presenting symptoms in people with coronary artery disease. Um, a lot of people, older people, women, and uh, m- 
very commonly diabetics, especially uh, uncontrolled diabetics or who've had diabetes for a long time, may not have the typical symptoms of chest pains during the heart attack. Even the big one, sometimes there's no symptoms at all. And then only the uh, aftermath of the heart attack, kind of like a heart failure and swelling and shortness of breath may uh, give us some clues that patient experienced an event. Or symptoms like shortness of breath, dyspnea on exertion. You're really exerting, you're really trying to do what you used to do two months ago and you can't because you're short of breath or you're tired because of those. Those are the biggest symptoms of coronary artery disease. So what point is somebody um, concerned enough to seek medical care or medical treatment whenever they're experiencing the symptoms? I think every time you have a retrosternal chest pain kind of may raise a worry. You can explain sometimes to yourself why you have it, but sometimes things can be deceiving, right? Lots of times I see patients who are kind of in the intermediate or uh, category for the risks for coronary artery disease. They're either younger population or never had any event before. And they tell me, you know what, I was doing something physical, shoveling snow. That's appropriate for today's. <laughs> and I started having chest pains. Well, it's, sometimes it's difficult to say whether they pulled something uh, because they were physically exerting themselves, doing an exercise they never do otherwise, or they really uh, uncovered some, some issue there that with the blood flow and all that. So it is important if it's concerning enough to ask your doctor and see if there is by symptoms themselves or with additional tests, this can be investigated any further. So there are also some types of tests that people can take to kind of determine if they're having some type of cardiac event, right? What are those tests? Yeah, so the, the most important thing is of course, is, is of course the history, uh, the presentation of the uh, chest pains. Many times you can talk to a patient and they say there's nowhere, it's a cardiac pain, there's has all characteristics of non-cardiac pain and uh, people don't need anything in that case. But if you have a suspicion, if the chest pain is typical or atypical and patient has significant risk factors, diabetic, obese, cholesterol's high, had prior heart attacks, have significant family history, then you can, uh, depending on the symptoms and your level of suspicion and the risks, you can justify either doing, for example, a stress test, which is a fantastic test because mm -hmm. many times we can make a patient to reproduce an amount of exertion that's causing chest pain in C, or uh, uh, go straight to looking into the vessels. It's called coronary angiogram, taking a look at the blockages inside the heart if there's any and uh, at the same settings, many times you can fix them. There is other modality that is uh, widely used nowadays, especially in the younger population. It is called coronary uh, CT or computer tomography. That is a quick CT scan that is directed at your heart vessel, can detect plaques and blockages uh, pretty well as well. So let's say somebody has already had like um, a heart event in their life, right? and they're on medications, are there any types of medications that they shouldn't be taking or should they look at the medications that they're taking together? What's the process look like for them? Yeah. So what you're really talking about is the, is the secondary prevention mm -hmm. of, uh, of coronary artery disease. There is a primary prevention when a patient did not have any event yet, but has risk factors and we need to control those mm -hmm. so that patient hopefully never have an event. Or the secondary prevention, which is as you as happened. you asked that happened, patient had heart attack or stroke or has significant blockages in the arteries of the uh, lower extremities, for example, 
and uh, we already now know they had a disease. We want to prevent the second event. That is very important because people who had heart attack or stroke, the, that's their biggest risk factor for the second one. They are much more likely to have the second one if they had one before. So medications is definitely an adjunctive to lifestyle modifications. We talked about this during the radio show. There are a lot of those primary, primary preventive measurements uh, go into the secondary prevention too. And the most important things are diet, exercise, losing weight, uh, all that, uh, mm -hmm. all that is very important, sometimes difficult to introduce and difficult to implement right away in the same setting, but has to be done. But us as a doctors, as cardiologists, and, and very often as a pr good primary care doctors as well, uh, we should, uh, help people to achieve their risk reduction with the medications. And those are always include a statin medicine, a thorvastatin or, or suvastatin, crestor, lipitor. Those are the highest intensity statins. This is to reduce cholesterol because over and over we show, with, especially with the latest studies, that the lower your bad cholesterol levels, the lower your chance to either have a first or second, third, you know, a heart, heart attack or stroke. It prevents it pretty well. The uh, other medicines that are necessary for the patient to be taken is aspirin. Baby dose or 81 milligram aspirin is very important in prevention of secondary, uh, secondary prevention of coronary artery disease. The latest study on primary prevention uh, showed that most, like we used to think that aspirin, baby aspirin is good for everybody. That's mm -hmm. not, doesn't hold true anymore. We actually rarely uh, prescribes aspirin in somebody who had no heart attack, stroke, or peripheral vascular disease, uh, unless they're diabetic, and even then, studies are kind of equivocal. But for the secondary prevention, absolutely, especially if the patient had stent, they take antiplatelet therapy, which aspirin is antiplatelet. What it does, it thins your blood, it doesn't let uh, thrombus to stick together and build uh, in, a, in a setting of new heart attack and, and prevents it that way. If the patient received stent or bypass uh, surgery for their blockages, they should take another uh, antiplatelet uh, uh, agent, which sometimes for the simplicity we call a super aspirin medication. Uh, those are Plavix or Plavix or Brilinta, uh, Prasugrel is another one. They are actually necessary to keep the stent open and not to let stent to clot uh, within the first year after the stent. Uh, now this is going to get shortened based on uh, requirements and bleeding risks and all that stuff. But usually one year is how we keep the patients on the medications. So those are very important medicines. Now, a lot of times patients come to me with the older patients uh, many times and they take a bunch of medications. I mean, that list, you know, it's just, I have- It's probably longer than my page. Correct, yes, my, yes, sometimes you have, you know, a few things, so that it's flickering in your eyes there. <laughs> when you look at, when you look through those medications, patients really shouldn't be, unless they really have a lot of comorbidities on a lot of medicines, it's called polypharmacy. It's a problem in itself. It's easy to mix up the medications, forget to take the new, the, the, forget to take the most important ones, or simply have no money for all of those medicines. So that's always needs to be looked into. And patients frequently take things like vitamin C, vitamin E, coenzyme Q. A lot of those medications have been proven not to be helpful. 
and I try in my clinic to stop those medicines. I always joke with my patients. I say, unless you're a pirate and you're on a ship without the fruits and vegetables, you don't really need a vitamin C in this country. Vitamin C is everywhere, right? Just eat your fruits and you'll be, mm -hmm. uh, especially with vitamin C being a water-soluble uh, vitamin, uh, you just you just basically pee, pee the extra out. Uh, you, you don't you don't get to hold to it. So vitamins, uh, different over-the-counter uh, medications that I wouldn't advise to take them. They cost a lot of money and they've never been proven to do anything for you. And then chelation therapy. Uh, there's certain medications that are chelators. Uh, they're not. There's really clinical studies not not uh, useful uh, at this particular point in time. And uh, we talked about this the other day. Uh, the hormonal therapy for women. A lot mm -hmm. of women come to me after menopause and they say, hey, I know that I had my menopause, I lost my estrogen protective quantities of the, uh, of, for the heart, uh, for yeah, the heart well, I disease. Supplement. Can I, do you think starting myself on the hormone replacement therapy is useful? It, unfortunately, it's not. It's not recommended currently uh, just for prevention of coronary artery disease. It hasn't been shown to be useful. Um, and it has its risks. Uh, you know those risks should be determined by your primary care or your uh, or your uh, gynecologist, whoever you talk about that. You know clot formation, risk mm -hmm. of cancers are all elevated with a replacement therapy on estrogen, especially if it's unopposed. And then uh, uh, the other things like yoga, you know, acupuncture. There's really not enough evidence that this is helpful. It may be, we just don't have enough evidence on that. So um, the biggest, th the big thing that uh, we control is blood pressure control and cholesterol control. Those are chole those are medications that are kind of pillars of preventing the second stroke or second heart attack mm -hmm. and all that. Fish oils is a very important topic too. Studies are made, uh, studies are equivocal. Okay. So there's no great study that says that supplemental fish oils are really, really good for you, except for one medication that is very expensive. It affects your uh, triglycerides. That's it. We're talking about fish oils affect triglyceride mm -hmm. level mostly. LDL cholesterol is taken care of by statin if patient can tolerate that. And triglyceride levels are also affected by statin, but to a less degree, the fish oils are what affects the triglycerides. That's why fish in your diet is really, really good uh, supplement. But when you take an over-the-counter fish oil that's not <clears throat> FDA regulated, you don't know what dose you take in. The dose of fish oil may be different from pill to pill. You don't know who produces that. When you get it from pharmacy, really there's some studies that have some positive effect of the very high dose of fish oil, which is four grams a day. Uh, but the expensive medicine that is advertised to control triglycerides. They just had a few years ago a fantastic study. Everyone was amazed by the fact that relative reduction is 25% in the, in the mortality and morbidity and the repetitive uh, uh, heart attacks in somebody mm -hmm. who already had them. But just recent, um, recent um, uh, conference in cardiology actually kind of presented the study that kind of um, not repeated, uh, could not replicate those uh, findings. 
and uh, it's still kind of up there for de debate, especially for the price that we have to pay for that medication. It's not that the patient can tolerate already or their insurance is great and, and they paid and the triglycerides are already controlled, you should stop it. But it, you have a really high threshold to start that medicine fish oil to protect a patient. So, so that, that brings up another question for me is, what is your opinion on taking vitamins in pill form versus vitamins in tincture form? So I, I don't think, if it's approved by the pharmacy, I think they're pretty equivalent. Sometimes the tinctures are just nasty at tasting. It's just easier to take, you know, just easier to swallow a pill and not drink the fish. Again, for the fish oil, there is no approved, uh, approved yeah. form uh, other than the pills. Mm -hmm. And the fish oil, you actually have a pretty bad uh, fish or fish breath kind of thing when you take it, except for that other medication that uh, is, is, uh, is uh, really expensive they change the mm -hmm. molecule there and uh, that molecule change that's what the thing is actually more effective than mm -hmm. the other ones it doesn't make you you have a fishy fishy breath <laughs> but uh currently it's, it's pills mostly currently it's pills mostly so something else that whenever you were talking about this it made me um want to talk about diet because you you kind of mentioned that you can take all the vitamins in the world but what really is going to be most important is that diet and that lifestyle modification. So let's talk about that for a second. What's your recommendation on diet and lifestyle? Yeah, there's a lot of diets going around and uh, diet is not necessarily starving to death or eating plant-based uh, meals mm -hmm. only. The diet can be high calorie diet, high fat diet, you name it. I always, I always like to say that a lot of my patients uh, have a high high meat high fat diet. <laughs> so <laughs> it's uh, uh, the only diet that is proven to be really helpful for prevention, either primary or secondary prevention of coronary artery disease and stroke, is a Mediterranean, what it's called Mediterranean diet. Mediterranean diet is the diet that is, includes uh, a really, majority of this is, comes from vegetables, fruits, nuts that are not too salty uh, because of their blood pressure issues in many of those patients. Uh, it includes uh, lean meats, really little amount of red meat, but mostly white meats and fish, the most important fish, at least twice a week you're supposed to eat fish, one of which at least should be an oily type of fish. Uh, and uh, no fried food, no uh, food that is um, uh, full of trans fats, you know, bacon. Most American food. <laughs> Correct. Especially at the bre at breakfast. Yes. Mm -hmm. A lot of processed food not only have a lot of salt in it, but it has a lot of saturated fats because the way they cooked and the saturated fats is actually what increases your bad cholesterol and this bad food. So something you had mentioned before on our radio show that I thought was incredibly interesting is whenever we buy meat from the store, our meat has salt in it, correct? Yes, so if you go in and you pay attention, if you start paying attention to your salt content, a lot of people tell me, a lot of my patients tell me, I don't add salt to anything I eat. And I always uniformly say, you don't have to, not in this country. You don't have to add salt to anything. It's already added there for you. Your really recommended uh, amount of salt is five grams of salt or two grams of sodium uh, per day. And it's very, it's very difficult to maintain because everything we eat have salt. When you go to Kroger or whatever whatever grocery store and you buy your meat there, even the raw meat that needs to be cooked already has salt in it for preservation purposes. So very, very important to follow those kind of 
Some people are really, really particular about their salt content. Mm -hmm. Some people don't want to do it, but definitely not salting your food on top of what's already done is the first step to improve that. So something else that you had mentioned before that I think is, is worth noting on this podcast, since we're talking about heart health, is this thing called metabolic syndrome. Can you explain that for us? Metabolic syndrome is a very uh, big problem in the United States. About 40% of people will uh, go under that category, uh, which is a very large number. Metabolic syndrome includes a combination of uh, obesity, especially abdominal obesity, uh, the high blood pressure and diabetes. Uh, it also comes with high cholesterol usually. So combination of those three, four things are kind of an umbrella of metabolic syndrome. And people with metabolic syndrome are very, very commonly uh, have much higher risk of coronary artery disease and stroke down the line, especially if they're young, they have to watch that, they have to control it as much as it's possible with the help of primary care and sometimes preventative cardiologist to avoid the issue. Now, what about things like tobacco, um, smoking, drinking? How do those affect our heart health? It's probably, it's, it's number one preventable cause of coronary artery disease and stroke. What does it mean is that it's very easily modifiable. The probably highest risk for the patient is their family history. You can't modify that yet. You got your dad and you got your mom. And if you got bad genetics from them, you got to be vigilant about this and seeing doctor and preventing the disease. But smoking is very preventable. Uh, and it's number one cause and preventable causes uh, for, uh, for, the, for those issues. Smoking is really, really bad. I mean, I, I can't stress this enough to patients. A lot of patients quit smoking after they had their first heart attack. It's kind of sometimes too late, but it's better than not quitting smoking uh, because you, about after a few months, well, actually two, you start, after a few months, you start getting the benefit of non-smoking, uh, reducing your risks. And they showed uh, in the study that three, about three to five years after you quit smoking, your risks from smoking in terms of coronary artery disease and stroke are now equivalent to somebody who never smoked. So you need three to five years away from the cigarettes, any types, even one cigarette is bad, to reduce your risks really to that, to that point of non-smoker. So do not smoke, do not vape, that is also bad. Uh, do not chew, do not do anything that relates to tobacco. Uh, tobacco industry is very happy about you paying them taxes and, uh, mm -hmm. and it's, uh, I don't think it's a good idea for your health. It's very preventable and it's not, uh, it's not a fashion. Yeah. Save your money and go buy some like expensive fish or something. <laughs> Correct. Or, 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 you know, a bag of nuts with no salt in it. Yes, exactly. Yes. Correct. <laughs> but those, for a lot of people, those don't taste as good because we've almost in American culture trained our taste buds to want the sweet and salty stuff, right? So how do you retrain your taste buds to want those, those good, healthy fruits and nuts and vegetables? That's a very good question, Bishop. So yes, uh, definitely salt and sweet uh, taste is a, an ever-changing thing. But the good thing about this is that you can train yourself both ways, mm -hmm. uh, as long as it's conscious uh, attempt to do that. You, people who eat, uh, people in my clinic who I advised to reduce their salt and they were successful, I see them a year after, and they say they cannot eat foods they used to eat just because how salty it tastes to them. 
So the more salt you eat, the more salt you want to have and crave, and it's kind of a vicious circle. So retrain yourself to the lower salt, suffer for a little bit, and then you get in this, the food, food will be tasting normal to you again after some, some time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's almost like um, habits become part of your lifestyle, right? You just have to make small steps to make them habits. It is. And the same thing goes for sugars, uh, especially for diabetics. So important. Preventing diabetes, controlling diabetes is one of the most important things we should do as cardiologists to prevent coronary artery disease and strokes and peripheral vascular disease as well. The, um, when you eat something that is very sugary uh, and full of sugar, you release a lot of insulin. That's not this person without diabetes mm -hmm. or type 2 diabetes too. And the insulin makes you even hungrier. So the more sugar you eat, the more you crave the sugar, the more you, you eat, the more you eat in general. So another experiment that I like my, my patients to do is to cut amount of sugars they eat and just, I'll tell them, just wait two weeks. Just give yourself two weeks of this experiment and you see your appetite will be reduced. You eat less, you won't crave that sugar. Sugar things are gonna be too sweet for you. This isn't, our tastes can be changed back. So that leads me to another question. What's the difference between like sugar and somebody who's trying to get off sugar? Maybe they switch to like erythritol or like stevia. Does that have the same effect on our brain? So, uh, I'm probably, uh, there's the people who are better equipped in this, uh, uh, to answer this question for diabetics, there's no doubt, mm -hmm. uh, going into this sugar replacement, uh, products such as stevia or any types of artificial sweeteners is a great idea because it reduces their sugar intake by, by a lot. Mm -hmm. However, uh, there are a lot, there's some studies that tell you. Oh yeah, drinking sodas that are diet sodas is a great idea because you reduce your, you know, it's a 200 calorie can, 150 calorie can uh, of, you know, if you drink Pepsi or, or yep. Coke. But unfortunately, you when you drink a lot of diet sodas, it it shown to lead to actually weight gain, but through another mechanism. When you drink something sweet, and those artificial sweeteners are much sweeter than actual refined sugar, you trick your body into drinking or eating something really sweet, but no calories come with it. The body thinks, huh, that is, that is wrong. So it bumps up all those appetite hormones and other hormones to get that, to extract that amount of energy that comes with, mm -hmm. you know, the actual sugar. And you eat more. You're found to be eating more because your appetite is, 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 is more. Uh, and it actually, you actually, some, 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 some studies show you actually gain weight with drinking those. those yeah, I would items. not be surprised to find that. Um, so we have a couple of minutes left. And I know that it's Heart Health Month. And I want to give you a couple of minutes to just speak to our listeners and um, share any piece of advice that you might give to them. Yeah, so uh, the biggest thing is that uh, heart Health is very important. It's, it's been important for many, many, many years, and uh, we're getting much better in treating heart disease. We're getting all the tools to treat advanced heart disease, whether it's advanced heart attacks or heart failures. We're getting much better in prevention. Statins is a fantastic medication if you can tolerate them, and the statins reduced the acute heart attacks or the course of past 
you know, 10, 20 years significantly. But you should always know your risk factors. You should always know your genetics. Uh, this is very important if you can. And pay attention to things that may improve your overall health. We all know what's, what it means to be healthy, right? But it's difficult to achieve. Every day, you should, you should kind of nibble at a little bit of yourself to make yourself a little better, whether it's exercise, whether it reducing your sugars, especially if you're diabetic, whether it's a better diet uh, and better sleep, less stress. Stress control is important too. Those things are difficult to introduce, but they must be done because the most important thing in prevention of those common, very common, and very often tubular dating diseases. Fantastic. Thank you so much for being on our show today. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, thanks so much for tuning into The Scope. If you liked our show and would like to know more, check out buckfelt.org.